Well, Merry Christmas again. It is Advent Sunday number two. And again, we are following the fruit of the spirit order. So we are talking about love, exciting and new. And I will stop singing the Love Boat theme song right then and there. (laughs) Now, a couple of things before we even get started. We must unequivocally reject the world right now before we get go anywhere else on this. Because if you don't, your definitions will be completely out of whack. It is officially Hallmark season in my house. <sighs> I know. My wife likes all the Hallmark movies. Now my daughter likes all the Hallmark movies. <sighs> <laughs> And there's like four good ones total. And the problem is once you've seen all four of the good ones, you now know the plot of all the other ones. My, oh, the only reason to watch any of them at this point is just to, and by the way, it doesn't matter what channel you have, whether it's the Up channel or Lifetime or somebody was telling me the Great American something channel. They all follow the same formula. They are not, nothing alike, and then they will fall in love, and then there will be, in the last 20 minutes of the movie, some conflict that they must overcome and reconcile their unknown differences, and then apparently live happily ever after. So there you go. I've now ruined every movie for you. You know how it's going to end. <laughs> no. We don't want to use that definition of love. One, it doesn't make any sense. Two, it is completely broken. We want to use God's definitions for things, which means we want to use Scripture's definitions of things, which means we have to be wary of ourselves and our own understandings of this. So, to put this bluntly, Boston had good theology. Yes, Boston. Love is more than a feeling. And now you say, more than a feeling. (laughs) Say, there you go. No, always has been, always will be more than that. At the end of the day, believe it or not, if you've been married for more than 20 minutes, you all understand this. Love is a choice. You make... (laughs) I heard that. That was my wife. (laughs) See what I have to live with? See what I have to live with? Oh my goodness. See, see, you think she's all sweet and innocent and quiet. Uh Uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. Every once in a while, the true colors come flying out of there. (laughs) No, if you, and I'm only mostly joking there, but if you have been married for any length of time, you have had the experience where you were like, I am choosing this day (laughs) to not kill you because it's, and you have those days, don't don't nod and look at your spouse. (laughs) So, With that said, you wish to choose wisely. You wish to understand your definitions correctly, and you then must follow them. So, airdrop time. Are you ready? Because you know my rules on this are, I despise doing this, but for special occasions, there's almost no other hope. They don't put all the special occasion stuff in the first chapter of every book. That would be too helpful for me. So, Romans 5. If we start in Romans 5, what did we miss? Yeah, Romans. Womans. We missed Womans. (laughs) We missed Romans 1 through 4. So, Romans 1, you ready? Here is your quick and easy recap of everything you've missed thus far. Romans 1, God is obvious, so is sin. There you go, just summarized 32 verses for you, you're welcome. Romans 2, all people are under sin, even God's chosen people. So even Israel, according to the Romans 2 definitions, are under sin. Romans 3, salvation is by grace through faith, 
even amongst God's chosen people. There's not a separate gospel for Israel and then one for the rest of the world. There is one gospel message. Romans 4, proof of concept. You can see this in the life of Abraham. I can't get all of my consonants working today. Of course, I couldn't get Romans and one together, so I'm losing vowels too. We're in trouble. Um, Romans 4 is the proof of concept. The promises that God has given are granted through faith. And Romans 5, the section right before this, there is joy in God's accomplishment even in the midst of difficulty. So there you go. Go home and read Romans 1 through 4. It will definitely do you good. So with that in mind, you can now dive into our section. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there are two things we need to catch, and we're going to take them out of order. So we're going to get the number two thing first, which is at the right time. The time was right. Paul told this to the Galatians church, the Galatian church as well, Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Ooh, you know what I have an opportunity to do right now that I love doing, right? I'm going to run to the map. So part of the right time, and if, you're, and if someone asks you about this and watching later, tell them to look at the maps in the Bible. They're the same maps. Rome owns everything from about here on this map, and I'm not, I'm not making that up, about here on this map to basically the end of the map. Rome owns all of that. You can travel through most of that relatively safely. And again, the term travel safely is ultimately relative. It is still the ancient world. It's not like you had cell phones and GPS, and, but there were still Roman garrisons stationed all over the place, and there were actual roads. The Romans were great engineers, built stuff that you can still go look at to this day. Um, fun little note about the city of the actual city of Rome, not just the empire, but when you get to the Middle Ages, there are Roman noble families in the 12th, 12th, 13th, and 14th century who are cannibalizing Roman buildings that were built in the first century to rebuild their homes. And the stuff that the Romans had built was still there. The only reason it fell into disrepair is because people were like chipping the marble off to use it in their houses. <laughs> the, I mean, the Roman architecture, the stuff that the emperors in the, in the Republic built, most of it would still be there if we didn't tear it down. <laughs> they were that good. They built roads that you could travel on. You could travel in large groups. People did this. There was commercial trade. You could book passage on ships and go from the Black Sea area out to Spain and down to Jerusalem and into North Africa. You could get everywhere. That's part of the right time, is God basically shrinking the world in such a way that the gospel message could spread. The other part of that is with Roman dominion was the Hellenistic culture. You could pretty much go into any market in that world and find someone who spoke Greek. It was just a necessity. Whether you were in a market in Spain or a market in modern-day Iran, you would probably find someone who could speak some Greek and you could communicate. That makes the gospel spread a lot easier when it doesn't matter where you are, there is someone that you can talk to. And then the message can go from there. So the second thing we got to catch, or the first thing we're catching out of this is there was a timing that was right. I got really bad news for us, though. The time was right. Guess who wasn't? Us. So at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly who were helpless. Romans 3. What then? Are we better than they? No. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. This is one of those does of scripture, because if you go all the way back to the very beginning, you will see this. So uh, Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth continually, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. That's a declaration about people, isn't it? Now, who knows what happens in Genesis 7? What happens in Genesis 7? A flood. So this is Genesis 6. This is your reason for the flood. Then there's a flood. Who knows what God says about humanity in Genesis 8? That the intent of their hearts is evil continually. In other words, have the people changed because we judged them? No, not even a little bit. Now, that becomes the duh of the rest of Scripture. This is an obvious truth, but it's an obvious truth that we miss because we don't like its implications. It actually means something in our world. And the first thing it should mean to you is that you can't rescue you. I mean, there's a reason why we call them rescue teams and rescue helicopters and rescue missions. If you could get out, what wouldn't we do? <laughs> we wouldn't send someone in after you. We would just wait for you to get out yourself. We wouldn't go looking for you if you knew where you are and you knew how to get home. So we are rescuing you because you are incapable. Go back to Romans 2. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Which, by the way, if in Paul's world, that's the biggest advantage you could have. To know who God is, to know what God requires of you, to know what you're supposed to do in this world. And you are confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You, who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You, who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the warning to Israel. Why does the world have such a low view of God? Because they have a low view of you, and you are how they have learned of God. They have seen not what you said, but what you how many of you have had kids that looked at, and all of a sudden you looked up one day and they did something and you went, I didn't teach them to do that. And then you stopped and realized, oh, yeah, I did. Because while I told them not to do that, what did I do? And what do the little critters in the back seat do? What you tell them or what they see you do? Every single time. This is true of children. This is true of all people. When you look, when you go to get a job, I always used to deal with this in restaurants, is we have all these procedures, which was, always amazed me that you'd be like, there's a checklist on how to make a sandwich because you would think people would know how to make a sandwich, but we want to ensure that everybody, whether it's the guy who's been here for 15 years or the guy who's been here for 15 minutes, when they make the sandwich, what should it taste like? It tastes, tastes the same. So there's a checklist. <sighs> Nothing more aggravating than having someone who's been there for about a year who doesn't pay any attention to the checklist anymore because you can't have them teach anybody because then guess who gets yelled at? Me, by the owner, because I let them train the person and now they're not doing it according to the checklist. Why? Because the checklist is stupid and there's a better way to do it and nobody follows the checklist, but guess how we're supposed to train them? <laughs> yeah. Half of restaurant training was, all right, this is how we're supposed to do it. You got all that? All right, here's what we actually do. <laughs> Why? Because it makes more sense and it works better. This is how the world works functions. This is part of the problem 
of our lives is that we don't start with us. Where's your first ministry? Your first ministry is at home. Who does it start with? You remember this in a few minutes. We're going to come back to this idea. It's very, very important. Which, again, this is part of your reminder as you live in the world. I'm not asking for perfection because I know you can't do it because I know I can't do it. But I am asking for effort and consistency and acknowledgement. The worst thing that we do is when we mess something up or when we fall into sin and when we blaspheme before the world and then we go, no, we didn't. No, 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 no. See, what really was going on was, stop it. Stop it. Say what? Messed up. For this too, Christ died. For this too, he has gone to the cross. These are the things that we war against. Now we're being consistent. Now we're acknowledging who I am and what God has done. And I can preach the gospel not just to myself, but to all of those who are around me. It's a reminder that we're helpless without him. And this is, again, why your hope must always be placed outside of you, outside of the world, but in Christ and in Christ alone. If you fast forward from this section, this is Romans 8. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Always remember... And while this is not an excuse to sin, always remember that it is not your perfection that will be presented before God. It is Christ's. It is his righteousness, his goodness, his accomplishment. So, with that said, Paul makes a logical point. Verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. This makes perfect sense. Whose life is most important to you? Be honest. (laughs) Yours. Yours is. Will you give that up for anything? When I say anything, I mean like any old thing. No, 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 no. There's a, there's a short list of things that like sacrifice of life is, is, is going to be okay for. I've, I've joked with you guys before. The, uh, I think I've joked with this in Sunday school class. I probably shouldn't say this out loud in a sermon time, but I always say the wrong thing out loud. So I mean, I, Cameron and I always laugh when we drive down the, the highway and we see those, you know, those information boards that try to tell you to wear your seatbelt and stuff like that. My, my new favorite one is, the, um, is no text is worth a life. And every time I read that, I go, I could be convinced. <laughs> I've, I've met some people. <laughs> you're not on that list. Okay, just so you know, you're, you're not on the list. I'm kidding, but you know, this is how my humor works. So this piggybacks on verse six. If you were good, if you were righteous, if you were worth it, the sacrifice of a life is still an amazing thing. When did Christ die for you again? While you were still helpless, and ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the difference between you and God. You demonstrate love. God is love. First John 4, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God 
is love. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I always make sure I cover this because the NASB leaves the big words in there. Propitiation is a big fancy word that means to turn away wrath to turn away the wrath of God. This is what Christ is. This is why I always tell you, where is your, or I always ask you, where is your peace found? Because if you look for it in the world, you aren't going to find anything. You do not have peace with the world. You have enmity with the world because the world has enmity with God and you have peace with God. Why do you have peace with God? Because the wrath that will be poured out against sin will not be poured out against you because Christ has taken away the penalty and the reproach. Therefore, you have peace with God. That is the propitiation that Christ has accomplished. That is the joy that John is celebrating in. And by the way, this is why you are called to the standard that you are called to. So, John 15, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. See, we all know that verse. The next verse is the important one. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now again, keep this in the right order. If you were an Israelite reading Romans 2 and Paul is telling you all the things that you have, you know the law and you teach the people who don't know and you are light to the, light to the blind and everything that might be needed and given and you are providing all that, but you yourself have still a heart of stone. What use is all of that knowledge? None. None whatsoever. You must be born again. Christian, you don't do good stuff so that God will be pleased with you, so that God will be happy with you. Your hope is that God is pleased in Christ. And we know from the testimony given that he is pleased in Christ and he's pleased with Christ. And as you abide in Christ, God is then pleased with you. You are seeking to do your good works, not so that you will be changed, but because you have been changed. This is why I forever tell you when you look out the world and you see sinners sinning, you go, oh, why? What do you think was going to happen? That people go after the desires of their heart. This is why we ever spend any time with addiction or addiction ministries. As long as they want that drug, more than anything else. You know what they're going to go after? And you know what they're going to destroy to go get it? <sighs> Themselves, their loved ones, their family, their life, their life, everything. Why? Because that's the thing that they want. This is the call that Christ has put upon his people. You should want the sanctification and the glorification and the presence of God more than anything else. What will you allow to stand in your way of achieving that end? It should be nothing. This is why the gospel sets family members against each other and sets Christians against the world, because that's not more important. At least it's not supposed to be. If it is, it's because guess what you've just discovered? You found your idol. Now you get to kill it. Yay. There, there's your happy dance, right? <laughs> Now, let's get some definitions in order, and, and this is, this is going to be complicated if we do a bad job. So I, since I'm the one talking, it's going to be complicated. 
So let's see if we can make sense of this, because I'm going to read you a section that I guarantee you, you know part of the verse of. You ready? Matthew chapter 25. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to... What's the next line? I knew it. As, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, right? That's how it goes, isn't it? Are you sure? Are you positive that that's how it goes? Are you absolutely certain that that's how it goes? <laughs> you ready? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, I'm going to say something first, and then I'm going to qualify it, okay? Where's your first ministry? At home. It begins with you and then moves where? People you have immediate influence out, and then as that gets covered, you begin to do what? It begins to expand. Should you be expanding to the nations across the ocean while your home is a train wreck? No. First remove what? The log that is in your own eye before helping your brother remove the speck that is in his. Christian ministry starts with who first? Starts with me and the people that God has given to me. Christian ministry starts with Christians. It does. Your proclamation, your counsel, your work starts with the people of God and moves out. If you'd like an example of this, for your homework this week, since I gave you Romans 1 through 4, let's add to your misery. Um, 1 Timothy 5. You can double check me on this. But this is your qualification for widows that Paul tells Timothy as he's aligning and setting up the church. What's the first line of protection for the widows in the congregation? So should the church see a widow and go, all right, guys, round up the money and start delivering meals? What's the first step? Does she have family? Because if she has family, shame upon them if they do nothing. Why should the church have to step in if you have kids who can do this? That's Paul's command to Timothy. Go get the family. Kick them in the butt. Put them to work. Now, if they won't, what should happen? Now the church steps in. But there are levels to this. There are ways that this is supposed to function. Now, this is my qualification now that I've said all that. Does that mean you look at the world and go, non-Christian? No. No, you do not. But do not give them the sledgehammer that they will beat you with. Because this is how this conversation will always go. Well, aren't you supposed to be loving? Aren't you supposed to be kind and gracious and forgiving? And I was born this way. And this is how I was raised. And this is what I believe in my heart. And isn't love just love? And what have they done? I'll help you out and I'll give you the summary of everything I just said. Did God really say? That's what they've just done. If you are running towards a cliff and I tackle you and I scrape your little knees and you maybe got a concussion when your head hit the ground, but you didn't go off the cliff, was I mean? Was I hurtful? 
No, I did what? I did a loving thing. No, I'm not going to let you do this. When my kids were three and they wanted to play with matches, well, you know, they've got to learn eventually. Who am I to stand in their way? <laughs> no, you said what? No. And when you kept trying to touch the hot oven, you know what I did? <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. At no point was I going to go, well, you know what, fine. Touch the hot eye and see what happens to you. No. Now, when they're 10, yeah, we'll have that conversation. Yeah, go ahead, touch it. See what happens. Ah, because now you know better. Why do you know better? Because I spent the last 10 years telling you so that you might listen to me. They change the definition of love. They change the definition of acceptance. They change the definitions of forgiveness and of grace and of tolerance. It's so that they can pull you just a little bit farther. So they can drag you just a little bit deeper. Christian, do not be jaded in the world, but see the world rightly. When someone looks at you and goes, well, does it matter as long as people love each other? Yes! Yes, it matters. It matters greatly. If I beat my wife but continually say, but I love her, do you go, you know, honey, he says he loves you. I think you just, just, you need to turn the other cheek. Well, well, that one's bruised too. Okay, we'll get you one of those little masks they put on the basketball players. That'll be helpful. That would be dumb. What's the rule? Don't do dumb things. When is that rule in effect? Okay, just making sure. Just making sure. (sighs) No, just because someone says something does not make it true. And just because they claim something doesn't make it a reality. Love is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is an active choice on how you live in this world. And yes, how you live in this world actually matters. This was, again, part of what Paul has been telling the Romans. Don't just sit there and look out and say, well, we do this and we do this and we do this and we have this checklist. We're good. No, you're not. The heart is deceitful and wicked and above all else. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are all the things he's going to be reminding them and pointing them again to what? The right definitions of who Christ is, what he has done, why this matters, and how you live in light of those things. So when I see you engaged in self-destructive behavior, I don't care how much you love it, the most loving and caring thing I can do is tell you what? The truth about what it is. And I can point you in a direction that rescues you from it. And I can proclaim to you the mercies of Christ who has redeemed people from it. Always remember, this is why it is Christ above all else. Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You live the way that you live because you have been changed by the gospel of Christ. You have been indwelt by the Spirit and your heart has been renewed. Your mind is being instructed day by day. Therefore, you think differently in the world. If you do not think differently in the world, you cannot act differently in the world, which is again why I tell you a thousand times, Christianity is a thinking religion. There is no autopilot. 
That's why I kind of laugh a little tongue-in-cheek about all the, uh, the not-sures in the, in the survey questions. Because there's a big portion of what claims to be the church that's answer is, well, you know, uh, I'm thinking about it, maybe. I tell you all the time, even on stuff where I'm not going to take a dogmatic stance, I still tell you what. I'm on side A or side B. What should you do? Pick a side and be prepared to do what? To defend it. Because you, you can't straddle a fence. You can't do it in church and you certainly can't do it in the world. They will make you pick a side. They will make you pick a side. And if you guess wrongly, they'll hate you. And half the time, if you guess rightly, you know what they'll still do? They'll still hate you. Because you can agree with the world on 99.9% of things. And what's going to happen on that 0.1%? Hater. Bigot. Racist. Something. Because you have picked the one thing that we have decided is no more. Sin doesn't want you to just, you know, drift. It wants to destroy you each and every day. Not some of them. All of them. And remember, what is the reality of sin, Christian? What is the one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt that we know is true of its future? It's defeated. That Christ has overcome. You are fighting against an enemy that has lost. Remember that each and every day. You aren't going into a battle that might go one way and it might go another. That's not God against evil. That's like Star Wars or something, you know, where good and evil are battling it out and maybe one will overcome. No, no, no. God wins. We may mention this in Revelation. You go to the end of the book and Jesus shows up for the battle and what happens? All right, kill those guys. We're done here. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the extent of it. The great battle of Armageddon is a verse and they died. <laughs> they are defeated. You are victorious. You have overcome. No matter what befalls you in this world, you stand in victory as you stand in Christ. Rejoice. Now, why do you stand there? Because God has redeemed you. Because God has accomplished. Because he has demonstrated his great love. And now he has commanded you in how you should walk. So let's keep moving that. Verse 9. Much more than Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So in other words, it's not just one time thing and now you're on your own, kid. Figure it out. God is actually shepherding you to the very end. John 15, Jesus tells the disciples, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Paul will explain this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. You're stuck. This is your power. Again, who did Christ die for in Romans 5? The helpless and the ungodly. Nothing apart from Christ. Because everything that's not built upon the foundation that is Christ is built upon what foundation again? Come and sing the song. You know you want to. All other ground is sinking sand. There's even a little dance for it. 
See, it's on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. <laughs> Sorry, VBS years ago. I can still sing VBS songs from over a decade ago, and it's frightening. Yeah, you'll, I'll let you ask me later about tumbleweeds, because there's a song for that too. <laughs> and it's sad. And it's, don't make that face, because Cameron's making that face, because she's now singing that song, and you're doing the hand motions with it. <laughs> I think it's the hand motions that makes it. They stick it into the back of your brain and it's just like seared there so that you can't remember useful things, but you can remember bad VBS hand motions from 20 years ago. I think that's the evil plot that's going on here. I'm just not sure who to blame for it. (laughs) Now, that understanding of what your foundation is and why you're building your life has got to be the place that you rest and remember each and every day. This goes back to the Old Testament, Psalm 110. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are nothing but dust. That's your starting point, Christian. That's the love of God demonstrated on a people who were ungodly and helpless, and yet God has condescended. He has come down. He has taken upon flesh. He has lived the life that we have failed, and he has died the death that we have have deserved, and he has granted us his righteousness. Remember, you have an imputed righteousness, the great exchange. Your sin and iniquity placed upon Christ in his account. His righteousness placed upon you. You therefore stand righteous because you stand in Christ. So, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Which means, Christian, you do not walk this walk by yourself. You have not been forgotten, you have not been forsaken, you have not been abandoned. Romans 8, again, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And once again, Paul does not get this out of a vacuum. John 14. Jesus to the disciples again, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now again, do not get that twisted, but read that in light of the works and explanations of Christ. Christian, what do we mean when we say keep the commandments? Are we talking about perfection? Because what do we know about you? (laughs) This is my favorite. How do I know that about you? How do I know you're not perfect? Oh, well, I could not be perfect, and you might be. There's a chance. You're here. You're here. You're here to hear a sermon from this weird dude, and you are here to worship and celebrate the work of Christ. What does that say about you? That you have recognized what? That you need help. Some of you more than others, but, you know, that's, that's not for me to judge. <laughs> we got to have a little fun on occasion. It's an acknowledgement that you need 
the righteousness of God because you cannot and you have not. That's why I always like to point out First John. So, okay, let me see. So Romans 1 through 4, 1 Timothy 5, read First John. What is that? That's, that's, that's only 10 chapters. You're good. You got this. <laughs> People always get hung up on 1 John 2 where he talks about how Christians do not sin because they have known the love of the Father and anyone who sins does not know the love of God. Always remember that 1 John 2 comes after 1 John 2. One, and in 1 John 1, you're told what? If you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. No, when we worry about you keeping the commandments, again, I'm talking about concern. I'm talking about effort. I'm talking about want to. I'm talking about how many of the steps of life do we celebrate? That's a win. That's a win. I'm better today than I was yesterday. I'm better now than I was five minutes ago. This is why your repentance is so important, Christian. When you have that moment where you're like, oh my goodness. All right, you know what? I need a minute. You know, okay, God, that was, yeah, those thoughts, that feeling, that, that was not a, that's a victory. That's a win. Because you stopped and you went, what? No, 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 no. I do not wish to live like this. Why don't you wish to live like that? Why don't you wish to feel like that? Why don't you wish to act out like that any longer? Because the Holy Spirit's going in the corner going, stop it. I told you to stop it. I'm going to have to smack you if you don't stop it. Always remember, Hebrews is in effect. There is discipline from the Lord, and it is good for you. And we're going to read that in a second. But that's a win. That is you understanding the commands of Christ, the love of the Father, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and going, okay, we're having some victory. I am recognizing Things about myself that are not good and are against Christ. And I am warring against them. Praise be to God. He has not forgotten me. He has not abandoned me. And praise be to God that I'm going to win. How do I know I'm going to win? Ooh, ooh, ooh. There's a Bible verse for that. 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. He's not in the ground anymore. That's how you know it was right and true. And he is victorious. The reason why you celebrate the fact that you're having that small victory is because it's a small little taste of that final victory that Christ will deliver. Because he has conquered sin. He has overcome the grave. He has removed the sting and he has removed the penalty. And you can rejoice because there is coming a day when this war will be over. And it will be done. And we will rejoice. And that's why I can rejoice in those baby steps. Because it's, a, it's just a, it's a little taste of heaven. It's a little recognition that God is at work. And he is accomplishing. And he is strengthening me. And he's building me up. And this is what it's going to be like all the time. <laughs> if you don't get a little get big giddy just every once in a while, just check your heart, please. It's good for you. It, it, have some joy. It's helpful. I know it's not joy week, but that's next week. So we got to get you prepared. Okay. Got to build you up for it. <laughs> Can't have you doing the Christmas songs I was listening to on the way into church today. Oh my goodness. I told my Sunday school about this. You know, there's nothing worse to me than a song that's supposed to be joyful that is sung in a non-joyful manner. And they took, oh, come all ye faithful. And, and instead of, oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and, you know, oh, come all ye faithful. I'm like, lady, put the volume down and sing the happy song. <sighs> See, that should bother you, though. And I'm serious, not as much as it bothers me, because I know I'm weird. But 
if we don't have any joy, and this is one of the, I, I, this was a, lar- a larger conversation that Cameron and I had. Have you noticed that there's a tendency to do this with Christian songs more and more now? Is that we take them all and we have to slow them down and add some feeling so that you can have some emotion brought into it. And if we have it just, you know, with that right little bass tone and we get it a little bit darker and a little bit calmer and a little bit quieter and a little bit softer, now, now you feel it rather than know it. Don't play on your emotions, Christian. Love is more than a feeling. Joy is more than a feeling. It is a recognition of who you are in Christ and what that means for your life then, now, and forevermore. And that's where joy actually comes from, a recognition that he wins. And because I'm on the side that wins, you know what that means about me, right? Like I was watching football games yesterday when I got, when I got, uh, when I got home. Had some fun stuff, but got to go home and finish watching football games and watched a, um, a championship, a conference championship game. You, you know the guy who started and played the whole game gets a t-shirt for winning? And you know the dude who didn't even put on his pads because he's not good enough to play? You know he got a t-shirt too? <laughs> You're on the team. The team wins. You win. Rejoice, Christian. Celebrate because of the love of God accomplished. Not hoped for. Not maybe the love of God accomplished in your life. Free from sin, free from its penalty, righteous in the sight of God, knowing he is victorious. And that's where Paul gets to in verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Why? Because of all the work that God has done. You now do what? What's your response to this, Christian? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we celebrate? Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals, with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because you know You know who he is and what he has done and that he hasn't forgotten. So here's your bummer of the day that's actually a cause for celebration. I told you I'd read it. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. By the way, that's your rejoicing right there. Again, I've I've asked you this before. Why don't you spank other people's children at Walmart? Because you'd go to jail. Why would you go to jail? Because they're not yours. Who do you think you are? That's not how this game is played. You Now, are there other kids at Walmart that you would like to spank? Yes, but you don't. Why? Because they're not yours. We have a phrase in our house. Not my monkeys, not my zoo. <laughs> I would wish that you would act differently, but you're not my responsibility. I have responsibilities. Where's my first ministry? At home with my people. I start there. If I spend my whole time trying to discipline everybody else's kids in Walmart while mine are burning the store down, what has been accomplished? And not only has nothing been accomplished, who is the greatest failure in all of this? I am. I didn't keep my house in order the way that I was supposed to. God disciplines you as with sons. That's why I looked at you, the Holy Spirit sitting in the corner going, stop it, stop it. I'm telling you, you need to stop that. That's loving. 
When you see the other kids in Walmart running around, you start to go, you know, that kid's going to hit that in a minute if he doesn't stop. After a while, you say what? I hope that kid hits that if he doesn't stop. (laughs) You start rooting for consequences because you can't deliver them. You hope that somewhere someone will. This is what God is doing for you, Christian. He is actually delivering you the consequences of your actions so that you will understand who he is, what that means, and how you are supposed to live. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? This is, again, a cause for rejoicing, Christian, is that you actually are being shown the problems in your world. You are actually being shown the right way to go. You actually have answers to the questions that they're asking. They are looking at the problem and going, what we need is for everyone to just love us just the way we are. No, what you need is Jesus. Now, if only there was someone who knew that, knew how to explain it, and knew what that meant. You know what those people are called, aren't you, don't you? They're called Christians. That's why we don't go along with the schemes of the world. That's why we do not stand in participation with them. It's again why Paul tells you, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Sometimes you're just going, no. That is literally antichrist. And what I mean by that is, see, this is who Christ is. This is what he's commanded us to do. And everything you just tried is the opposite of those two things. What's the word for that? (laughs) That's antichrist. So let's just call a spade a spade, move on with life. Yeah, they hate me. Yeah, they want me dead. Yeah, they want war. Okay, I win. I have peace with God. I shine light. That's my victory. And Romans tells you, we're being slaughtered day by day, and we are overwhelmingly conquering. Because the kingdom, sin and the world have tried to stamp out Christianity since the beginning. How's that worked out thus far? Again, it's one of the favorite little things that you know where Christianity grows the fastest in world cultures, don't you? It's not typically in Christian cultures. It's typically in persecuted cultures. For years and years, the largest growing segment of the church was the church in China. Church in China has been illegal since what, 49, 50? They've been the fastest growing segment of Christianity for almost that entire period of time. Why? Because evil puffs up its chest, draws a battle line, and God goes, oh, (laughs) watch this. (laughs) This is going to be good. Because they've been defeated. And as they stand against the culture... The testimony spreads. I've told you this before, that there are numerous testimonies during the Roman Empire of executioners being converted. And like stopping and going, okay, you know what? You got to kill me too because I'm in. I just, here, 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 you got him. Me too, I'm next. I mean, because they see the strength. They see the testimony. They hear the power. And then God changes people's hearts and minds. And then they too are strengthened and empowered to stand against the world. That's the work that the Spirit has been doing. It's the work that the Spirit still does. Christian, that's you. That is where you rest. That is where you live day by day. So again, last little thing. Go back to Hebrews 12. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, or to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. What's Paul talking about? And by the way, Hebrews is a sermon of Paul written by Luke. That's just 
that's official, so I'm just going to keep going with that. Where's the, um, where's the mountain of blazing fire and the darkness and the gloom and the whirlwind? That, that's Sinai. You haven't come there. To the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words, which was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. It's always my favorite unintentional comedy in Exodus is God comes down on the mountain with the shaking and the thunder and the fire and everything. He goes, nobody come up the mountain. And everybody went, duh. <laughs> like we needed to be told that one. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the covenant, to be st- and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. In other words, you have come to peace. You have come to security. You have come to righteousness. You have come to strength because you have come to victory. That is where you live day by day. Christian, please remember that in this world. Do not fear the world. Do not fear the enemy because they've lost. You stand victorious because of who God is and what he has accomplished. Let's pray.